Hey everyone, Dr. Pat and I would personally like to invite you to join us in our Grow My Baby program. This is week-by-week pregnancy and birth information developed from our experience of helping more than 4,000 women grow and birth their babies. All our links are on our website, growmybaby.com.au. The information in this podcast is provided for education and research information only. It is not a substitute for professional health advice. If you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you feel a little bit overwhelmed by all you need to know, then this is the right podcast for you. Welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And this is The Kick, your expert-led podcast that delivers the essentials of growing a baby. Make sure you head to our website, growmybaby.com.au, to get some awesome free tools like our Pregnancy Knowledge Checker to help you feel like you got this. Welcome everyone, I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And today we're going to do um, something to follow up our other IVF pregnancy podcast. We promised our listeners we'd get Ralia back again. Yeah, so we've got Ralia Lou, the IVF expert, back again. And we're sort of pounding a few <laughs> questions to, to try and you know, get everything we can um, out for, from her expertise. Yeah, that's so great. And, you know, we asked our listeners also, Pat, if they would give us their questions. Yep. And we had some amazing people who spent a lot of time formatting questions, emailing it to us. We had someone that would have filled an A4 page, <laughs> all the questions she had, yeah. which is really good. But it just also goes to show how confusing the territory of IVF is hugely confusing and a daunting and huge. Mm. Yeah. And expensive, you know. Yeah. The, that's that's another thing. You want to make the right decisions because every decision's kind of got a cost attached. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to read out one of them because I think it is a, mm, a common enough scenario. So um, this, we'll say anon, anonymous. I'm a 38-year-old who has endometriosis removed three years ago after about seven years of painful intercourse and increasingly painful periods. My husband is 44 years old and we've been together for 17 years. We always knew we'd have kids one day, but wanted to earn more, get married, buy and then renovate our house first. I was waiting for the perfect time and also the maternal urge to kick in, which still hasn't, but I might have waited too long. We stopped drinking a year ago and have been trying naturally during the time, tracking ovulation and cycles, no success. We saw my gynecologist had the standard tests done, none of which indicated any reason for infertility. Already knowing my AMH is low and with my past endo, we had our plan B ready to go of giving IVF a try. Yes, so common story. It's a common story, isn't it? And and we get it because people do wait. They do wait until they, what did she say? Earn more, get married, buy and renovate a house. <laughs> yeah, well that's all that's fair enough and it's not as silly as it sounds because people know that if when once they go on um, you know, maternity leave and stop work or work less to to raise babies that their go their household income's going to go down. And we've got a little bit of a problem in Australia with housing affordability in the first place. So a lot of people are saying we better get a fair bit down that housing affordability path before we start to have babies, which pushes the baby back, mm. baby years back. And, you know, that's one of the issues we've got as a community. Mm. In terms of what happens in uh, an obstetric clinic, so when I think it might be useful before we go and talk to Ralia, yep. um, let's talk about, you know, somebody seeing you as a gynaecologist first. 
Yeah. How does this work? Yeah. yeah. So so basically, um, uh, I you know we we try and give. I try and give relatively simple messages to people. So to make a baby, you need sperm eggs and a safe place for them to get together inside uh, the woman's insides. So we often do a semen analysis. We need eggs, so we often do some ovulation testing. We've talked about that in another episode of the kick, the, of the kick, where we talk about um, you know how to see if you find out if you're ovulating or not. Is the cycle regular? Does a day twenty one progesterone test in the cycle indicate indicate that you've ovulated? And then is there a safe place for those sperm and eggs to get together? Well, we look at things like do you have pelvic pain? Is there pain with intercourse? Do we suspect endometriosis? Is there a history of infection that could suggest box tubes and so forth? So it starts with a, a medical history and then a bunch of tests. And then in the office of a general gynecologist and obstetrician like myself, we tend to manage that couple right up until the point where we might need an IVF doctor with an IVF laboratory. So as a general gynecologist, I do a lot of reproductive work and a lot of infertility work through a process of ovulation induction, through doing laparoscopic surgery to excise endometriosis and flush tubes and do dye tests on tubes, right up to the point where we say, right, yeah, we've done all of that. We've got a good sperm supply, we've got an egg, good egg supply. Everything should be working. Let's set ourselves a cutoff. And if you're not pregnant by then, it's off to the reproductive doctors. Mm. And then what happens? Does that patient sort of leave your care or do you get information about that patient? Yeah, well, it's a bit of a bummer, really. You always get a nice letter back saying, thank you for sending us, uh, um, you know, Mrs. Bloggs, um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do the needful and we'll send her back when she's pregnant. And then, and then people can get, sort of go dark for, mm. for quite some time, from uh, months to years. Mm. I've had some patients who literally have come back a couple of years later. Wow. And uh, what they've been going through in that time is a protracted IVF situation. Mm. And uh, they've sort of been, you know, lost to our clinic for a while. But then awesomely, uh, when they're uh, pregnant, they know who wants to look, who they want to have look after them for the pregnancy and they come back. How lovely. It's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so we, we, you know, that's, that's sort of how it works in general at our end. But the reason why I wanted to, to talk to Ralia was to get some sort of uh, insight into how it works at her end. Let's introduce uh, Ralia and hopefully we'll shed some light on what happens once they leave a general gynaecologist's room to Sounds go good. off to IVF. Excellent. Our guest today is Dr. Ralia Lou. Now, she is a CREI fertility specialist and gynaecologist. Now, some of you may not know what a CREI is. Um, now, this represents the highest level of training in IVF, and it's held by fewer than 2% of Australian obstetrician and gynaecologists. Ralia is also the founder of Women's Health Melbourne and a clinical director of Life Fertility Clinic in Melbourne and Brisbane. She's also the leading researcher in elective egg freezing, She's a fellow podcaster and has a podcast called Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. Well, welcome, Ralia. Welcome back. Like, it's so great to have you again. Thank you for coming back. Yes, yes. Our resident IVF expert is, uh, that's fantastic. Um, Ralia, what we want to do today is really important. We want to go through sort of more like 101 IVF. Um, because I think people come to our podcast uh, and they're trying to get pregnant, but maybe they've been trying for, you know, a little while and they're starting to look for more answers um, and perhaps somebody suggested, you know, it's now time for IVF. So, yeah, it's just a walking into 
a new environment for these people, I would imagine. Lots of terminology, lots of medical visits. Um, so, yeah, I think it'd be really great if we could go through what people would expect. All right. So I've got an interest in um, reproductive interventions that aren't IVF because they're part of my usual practice. Uh, and I do a lot of ovulation induction. And I'm wondering, we've discussed ovulation induction in a different in a different podcast, so our, our listeners know what that is. What I want, what I'm wondering from you is, do you think that is an underutilized tool in people whose reproductive issue is primarily an ovulation, and it could be corrected without resorting to IVF? So I, in my practice, also do a lot of ovulation induction for anovulatory infertility, and I very rarely treat uh, with IVF patients who have purely anovulatory infertility. And like you, I assume, I consider it a string to my bow when I achieve a pregnancy for a patient through means other than IVF. So for example, this morning, I spent my morning doing free laparoscopies for excision surgery for endometriosis. So it's one of those situations where you must provide individualized care and you offer the correct treatment to the correct patient to achieve their best outcome with the minimal amount of intervention required, but the maximal amount that they need to get them the outcome that they want. Fantastic. Because it is a little bit, um, people do feel like they get on a conveyor belt a little bit. Um, you know, if they start feeling like it's infertility is the issue, then they, they see a consultant and then they're offered IVF. And, and you know, it's, it's nice to know that there's someone out there that also thinks that ovulation induction can do quite a good job for some people. Definitely. If you don't release an egg, you're not in the game with a chance. Yeah. And if your only problem is that you don't release an egg, then helping you to release an egg should definitely be attempted. And um, one of the things I pride myself for in my practice at Women's Health Melbourne is the holistic approach. And we have a multidisciplinary team to help different people with different conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome, like hypothalamic and ovulatory infertility to both through medical treatments and also lifestyle adjustments achieve ovulation in a regular capacity. Raleigh, in the time that you've been practicing IVF, are you seeing a change in who's coming along and needing it? In the last 15 years or so that I've been practicing IVF, I've seen a pretty consistent population of patients. The biggest change that I've seen is really relating to egg freezing becoming something that patients decide to do proactively. That's a technology that was really considered experimental up to 2012. Mm. And then the experimental label was lifted by international societies because pleasingly we've seen blind birth rates that are really promising from frozen eggs acting as, as well as fresh eggs do in IVF. And that's because of a technology called vitrification, which allows us to store eggs in a way that they survive very well. So that's probably been the population that I've seen change in my career the most. And I guess it leads to the fact that many patients come to IVF 
for such a variety of reasons, but one of the common problems that we see is age-related infertility. And no doubt there are some patients who would not have struggled if they tried to have a baby a decade earlier, but who do struggle in their late 30s and early 40s at a time where multiple problems have developed over their life and egg quality particularly has declined. We are none of us born with conditions like endometriosis or uterine fibroids or varicose veins of the scrotum that can affect sperm quality. A lot of us acquire different conditions like autoimmune thyroid disease or diabetes. A lot of us start off quite slim in life and gain some kilos over the years. Quite often these problems happen all at the same time. And so people present with infertility as a complex array of concerns unique to the couple. There are also other issues that bring people to IVF, like genetic considerations or concerns or problems that they don't want to pass on to children. And there is a population of patients who have recurrent pregnancy loss, uh, and IVF is one of the ways that we can try and address that for them. So there is a really complex group of patients that I treat. What they have in common is that they would like to be parents And I feel that my job as an IVF doctor is part detective, part problem solver, and part future planner. Because when I see a couple, I always ask them how many babies they might like to have in total. And the strategic elements that I bring to IVF treatment can really impact their chance of future success. Mm. And what I mean by that is that if they come to me at a time where problems are already serious. We can address their future family planning needs by banking some embryos for them at that time so that if they want to have another baby in a few years' time where things are looking a little bit worse than they are today, we've got that extra ace up our sleeve to be able to help them. That's mm. That's that's an excellent point, and that comes to one of my favourite questions. And believe me, this as a as a working obstetrician, this comes up all the time. People who aren't experiencing technical infertility are worried about how they're going to fit the family size that they want in between starting at thirty nine and running out of of reproductive capacity, perhaps a couple of years later, and so. Is there a role for reproductive technology for people who aren't infertile but don't have a lot of naturally conceiving years to to go? I definitely believe that that is a very valid reason to freeze embryos for the future and that what we know is that fertility decline over the age of 35 is rapid and unrelenting. When we start our families later in life, the age that we have our first child will dictate the earliest opportunity we'll have to expand our family. And I think it is very valid to meet with patients and couples and explore their long-term goals because there are a lot of patients who do conceive a child naturally and struggle with secondary infertility. And where that is predictable and where we can create assets to help avoid it, I think it's it's very valid to counsel patients proactively. Fantastic. 
Riley, I know you've got a whole um, episode on egg freezing and to our listeners, I really encourage you to go over to Knocked Up um, podcast to listen to your egg freezing podcast. But could you just um, quickly say, the women that are coming to have egg freezing, what what is the ideal age for that to happen? Um, and are they coming as singles or are they coming as a couple and the couple aren't quite ready to have the baby or, or what's the most common scenario for you? The most common scenario is women coming as either singles or in a relationship not yet committed to parenthood. But couples do sometimes come together and consider both egg and embryo banking. The ideal age to freeze eggs, in my opinion, is in the late 20s or early 30s. Why not earlier? Well, you're definitely more fertile when you're younger, but you're also more likely to have fertile time ahead of you to naturally conceive. And you are more likely to have those opportunities be still available to you a little bit later on in life. And we don't want to be freezing eggs for everybody because it puts patients at risk of undertaking procedures they may never need and keeping eggs in storage, which can incur costs. What I would say is that when somebody's in their late 20s or early 30s, they're the most fertile they'll ever be from that time point forward, and they have some idea of when they might plan a first child if they wish to be parents, and they have a better notion of how useful having a supply of frozen eggs as an asset will be for them. And so I think it's that sweet spot between not yet having reached an age where fertility decline is really serious, where you still have a reasonable ovarian reserve in most instances to get a good outcome from an egg freezing treatment, but also being able to look into your future and think about how useful that asset will be to your future self. That's excellent. Is there any data yet on... Of the women who've frozen eggs, not embryos, but eggs, uh, of those women who go on to have a baby, how many have used the frozen eggs and how many just got a partner the next year and conceived naturally? We actually don't have that exact data from any source because there's no registry of people who conceived naturally. And there's actually no registry worldwide of everyone who's conceived with help either. But what we know from data in units where we service large populations and that report their data like IVI in Spain is that about one in five women who have frozen their eggs have come back to use them over a five to 10 year period. That's not complete data because women can still come back and use frozen eggs up to the age of their early 50s. So we'll only really know in about 10 years from now as to the, what we call utilisation of frozen eggs. And are you also recommending that women have um, that test, the AMH test? An AMH test is a test to see how your ovary might perform in an IVF context or an egg freezing context. It's something that women can use as a screening test, not for infertility, but for how good a candidate they might be for egg freezing or IVF. And that's useful information when they think about their future and fertility plans. In terms of natural conception, AMH is a measure. 
In terms of natural conception, AMH is a measure of ovarian volume and egg number, not of egg quality and not of functional fertility. You can have a small ovary and a low AMH and have very healthy eggs and hormonally normal cycles and conceive with ease. Or you can have a very high AMH and be quite unhealthy and find it difficult to conceive or fail to ovulate regularly with a polycystic ovary. So AMH is not the be-all and end-all. It's not a test of what we call fecundity or your chance of getting pregnant each month. It is one measure in a test profile of many tests that we do to assess a person's fertile potential. And it shouldn't be interpreted in isolation or you risk either causing undue distress or false reassurement. Well, thanks, Ralia. I think that's a really good start to a 101 on IVF. Um, I'm sure we'll get you back many, many times if, if you will um, have the time to do that uh, and we can get on to some of the questions that the listeners have. But also, listeners, jump over to Ralia's uh, podcast and, and have a listen to uh, the amazing information over there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks, Ralia. Lovely to be here. Bye for now. 